Thank you so much. God bless you as you go. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, isn't that something to be able to talk in real time to somebody in the Alps in France right now? Steve and Donna are wonderful servants of the Lord, and they are effective in their ministry. In the early service, Steve had just gotten in from off the slopes uh, from skiing. They're about six hours ahead of us over there. They are effective in relationship building and teaching God's Word. It's a privilege to have Steve and Donna Niles on our missionary staff. And uh, thank you, Pastor Everett and Paul Scott and Keith Baker, others that made that happen. That was our worst uh, connection this third hour. We had a little bit better connection in the earlier hours. Well, if you have your Bibles, will you turn to the book of Hebrews? We are beginning a brand new study out of this epistle uh, to the Hebrew believers. And um, one of the things I mentioned last week as we laid a foundation for our study is that we have at least 35 teenagers on our Bible quiz team who are committing the book of Hebrews to memory. And what a remarkable task, and they are so effective in it. And I thought that what we would do is each time in our sermon series through Hebrews, as we work our way through this remarkable book, that each time we address a new chapter, we will select some of the young people to come and to quote that chapter for our text, for our sermon. And so we're going to try to cover um, the entire first chapter of Hebrews today. And so I've asked a couple young men to come and to lead us in our Bible reading by quoting, as we run through our text of Hebrews chapter 1, Josh Baker and Sam Lake are here. They're going to come. Thank you guys for hanging around with us a little bit this morning. And uh, you look in your copy of God's Word. Let me remind you that I told the teens I would um, grant their request of preaching in Hebrews out of the New King James translation. So though the ESV is my norm, we're in the New King James translation, and that's the text that they've memorized this. So here we are with Josh and Sam, and our text for today, Hebrews chapter 1. Good morning, everyone. I'll be quoting the first seven verses of Hebrews 1, and Josh will be quoting the next seven. Hebrews 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail you. But but to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Amen. Thank you guys so much. That's Hebrews chapter 1. Give them a hand. Thank you very much. And there it is, the first chapter of this most interesting letter. Uh, Let me remind you that we don't know the author and we don't really even know the recipients. Uh, The early church uh, noted that it was a group of Hebrew believers. I want you to note that as the boys quoted the passage and as we look at our text to begin with, and if you have your notes and your pen handy, if you enjoy following along that way, if that's helpful to you, that it's without introduction and it's without any kind of personal word that the that the writer just begins to present to them a challenge. Now, let's remind ourselves what this challenge is. Let me use an illustration. One of the things that I do quite regularly is I counsel and I deal with folks who are struggling with problems. It's really a privilege. And I, I just um, am so thankful when people are willing to come in And to share that they have a need. And often though, you know it's hard to go to your pastor and say, hey, we've really messed up or this is really going bad or the wheels have come off. So you know things are pretty bad by the time you finally say, hey, we need to go talk to our pastor. 
So there they are, and sometimes tears are rolling down their cheeks. And, and often, when it's um, in marriage counseling, often, somewhere along the line, a love that was once vibrant and strong has changed. And two people who were once so drawn to one another are now drifting apart. Now, as I said, that's a little bit of a negative illustration, but I want you to understand the emotion and the mindset with which the writer begins to write right away in this letter to this group of believers that he knew well and they knew him well, and he cares deeply about what's happening. You see, they are beginning, and he knows it, he has gotten word that they have begun to drift away from Christ. And so somehow like a couple that stands on the platform and with, with eyes glowing with love and, and being so drawn together, entering into a relationship that is so meaningful, sometime down the road, it has cooled off, it has become interrupted, they have drifted apart. And not only that though, uh, it's as though one of the partners has somehow connected with a, maybe a high school boyfriend or girlfriend from 30 years ago, and they think to themselves, I would like to reconnect with the past. Now, this is not a romantic problem that's happening or a marriage problem. I'm, I'm saying that by way of illustration only. But that's kind of the emotion and the reality of what was happening. These Jewish believers, raised up in Judaism, followers of the law, knowledgeable of the Old Testament, had encountered an, an evangelist who had come and presented to them that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He had come. He had substituted into their place. He had once for all accomplished for them what the Old Testament sacrificial Levitical system could not do. He had finished his work by once for all substituting in and making the sacrifice that would be pleasing to a holy God so that they could enter into salvation with sin once for all forgiven. In the old covenant, under the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and lambs only temporarily, in a symbolic way, covered their sin. Now Christ had come, and you can enter into new relationship with Jesus, who is the Messiah. And so people who were raised up in a system of thought, people who were raised in a religious system of Judaism, had left that, had moved out, and were followers of Christ, and there was a group of believers. But then, because of a variety of difficulties that were going on, they began to doubt, and they began to wonder about this relationship and in fact, they began to drift, moving away from Christ, and some, like going back to a former relationship, wanted to go back to Judaism. Now, there were some reasons for that. I mean, we said last week, do you know how difficult it is to be raised up in such a religious system? And then to find out that that is not the truth, that is not the whole answer, and that there is Christ, and you can enter into this new salvation by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, and to leave what your daddy taught you, what your granddaddy believed, what your family taught you, and you walk away from that, and what was happening is, it was difficult to leave because the family would come after you. I had a most interesting young man in my office this week. He's now in his 40s. Back when he was about 21 years of age, having been raised up in an old order Amish community and family at age 21, he wanted to leave the Amish community and church. And so he told me the story of how he tried to sneak away and get away because he said, Pastor Van, you can't leave. They're always after you. They want you and they come after you. That's the way it was. These believers had left and they had left Judaism, but they had family members. Of come back, come back. Not only that then, they would be cut off, just like in an Amish community, for example, or a system like that, that if you are determined to leave, then you are no longer born into our household. It's over, it's cut off. And so they had suffered for their faith. Then we enter Nero and, and the, the, this time of persecution in the early church, the Colosseum persecutions were beginning. So not only were they persecuted by their own family, not only were they cut off by their father, their mother, their siblings, the rabbi, privileges were lost, property taken away just for leaving Judaism to follow Christ. They also had this whole thing of dealing with the pressure from the outsiders who were attacking Christians for their faith. So they began to doubt, they began to wonder, let's go back. And so that's the mindset. 
That's the difficulty of the emotion and the challenge. The writer knew this, what the recipients were going through of this letter, and he doesn't introduce himself, he doesn't give warm thoughts, he doesn't talk about anything, he just starts in and he wants to remind them that God has spoken. You need to know that God has spoken to you. So the first thing we're dealing with in the first two verses is, has to do with communication and that God has spoken. Notice what he says. Let's let our eyes go to the text. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So the, the readers of this epistle, the Hebrew believers, would have immediately in their mind gone back to the Old Testament because that's what the writer's talking about. He says, you know, you know, so no welcome, hi everybody, hey greetings, we're having good weather here, how are you? None of that, it's God in times past in various ways through various people have spoken. Oh yeah, we know that, that's old covenant thinking and when we look back we know that God has been a God who communicates to his people. It's interesting, isn't it, that God speaks And so in their mind, they would have thought about the Old Testament in in a similar way. We could thumb through the Old Testament and we could remind ourselves of all the different ways that God has spoken at various times, in various ways, in times past. Well, he spoke by the prophets. Peter talked about that. And in times past, the prophets spoke. So when we open the Old Testament, what do we see about this various ways and various times that God spoke? I mean, think about it. Way back in Genesis, it doesn't take long. We don't even have recorded for us, for example, in Genesis chapter 6, how God spoke to Noah before that. He spoke to Cain and Abel. He spoke to Adam and Eve. He walked with them in the cool of the garden. So God spoke. We don't even have recorded how he did that. But we know in Genesis chapter 30, 37, and I've just listed a few examples here to illustrate his point is that Joseph heard from God in dreams. So when God wanted to speak to him, he spoke to him in a dream. We know that God spoke in visions in the Old Testament repeatedly. He repeatedly used dreams. He repeatedly used visions. One example that is clear is Isaiah chapter uh, 1 and verse 1, where Isaiah had a vision and God spoke to him. Often in the Old Testament, God used angels as his messenger, didn't he? He did that in the New Testament as well, but he did it in the Old Testament I mean, an, an example is Zechariah chapter 1, verse 9, where, where Zechariah found clarity of what he was seeing by the angel telling him what it meant. The angel told him what God was saying to him. How about just voices? I'm thinking of little Samuel. His mother Hannah had dedicated him to the Lord. She drops him off at the temple. There he's raised by Eli the priest. It's the middle of the night. He hears a voice calling him. He gets out of bed and he runs into Eli, the priest's room. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What are you doing? No, I didn't say anything. Go back to bed. Three times he tells him to go back to bed. After the third time, Eli finally wakes up enough out of his sleep to think this young man is hearing from God. That's how rare the voice of the Lord was, by the way, under Eli. That God was speaking to Samuel with a voice. It was evidently an audible voice that Samuel could hear there in his room. And God gave him a message. We have writing. We have examples of writing. Daniel chapter 5 is such an example. That's a crazy picture. I mean, there you've got Daniel, who is now very mature. He's under his second king that he's serving. It's Belshazzar, who is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar uh, is a wicked king. Um, God's done with him. And the Medes and the Persians are right outside, tunneling in under his walls. He's partying inside, and God wants to speak to this king. And all of a sudden, remember, a hand appears in the room. Woo! A hand, and it begins to write on the wall. And, and this is what it says. You're done, buddy. It's over. It's over. So what he writes, this big hand. I mean, some of us wish God would write on the walls of our room or something. And we're going to be able to continue to think about how God communicates to us in our study of the Hebrews. Let me assure you, you don't need God to write a message on your wall. God has already written everything he wants you to know, and it's right here in this book. You don't need to seek a new way of what God says. God has told you everything you need to know right there in the book. But God speaks in various times, in various ways, in times past, dreams and visions and angels and voices, in writing. How about a donkey? How about a donkey? 
God even spoke through the, a donkey, and you say donkeys don't speak. Yeah, they do if God wants them to. And he spoke through a donkey. Isn't that something? So there's, he starts right in. He knows that they're drifting. He knows that they are moving out of the most precious relationship they could ever have, and they're wanting to go back to a former love. They're wanting to go back to former ways. And he just immediately says, listen, God has spoken. He has spoken in various times, in various ways, in times past, to the fathers, by the prophets. But let me tell you this, then he says, He has, in these last days, spoken to us by his Son. You need to know that this Jesus who you're following is a word from God. Of all the ways that God has spoken to, and there's a contrast in the passage, this would have exploded on them. You need to know that who you need to listen to is this word. Now, it's not God's final word. It's his ultimate word. Jesus is God's ultimate form of communication. It's not his final word because the canon of Scripture was not complete yet. The text had not all come together. They were still being written by the, by the apostles. The disciples had recorded the Gospels. The New Testament was not complete and recognized by the early church as the authoritative word of, authoritative word of God under the inspiration and leading of the Holy Spirit. So there was still a word of God coming, but he says, in the Old Covenant, he spoke in many different ways, even a donkey You need to know in the new covenant, he doesn't talk like that anymore. He speaks through his son. So I don't know what you're listening to, and I don't know what you're paying attention to, but you need to listen to the son. And then immediately, he moves into credentialing him. You want to know why to listen to the son? Let me tell you about this Jesus. So I'm telling you, the writer, he he just goes right at it. He doesn't introduce anything. He just says, God has spoken in the past in many ways. Now he's speaking through the Son. And let me tell you about the Son. So we move into the credentials of Jesus. And it is all pointed to convince them that Christ is superior. Christ is the one who's superior. They need to listen to Christ. And here's how he knows. So look at, back at the text, verse 2. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom, number one, he has appointed heir of all things. You want to know why you want to listen to Jesus? You want to know why God speaks through him? Because he, letter A, is the heir of all things. What does it mean to be the heir of all things? Ultimately, it means that he will inherit everything that God possesses. It's like a father who maybe in an unjust way gathers his family around and announces that he's leaving the entire estate to one child. And all the rest get nothing. Now I know that at some level we have an inheritance Christ. At a great level we have an inheritance with him. And a shared inheritance. But this is the reality of the fact that God gives everything to Jesus and then Jesus gives it to us. And so Jesus is the one who is going to be the heir or the inheritor. It all isn't complete yet. He's the possessor of a a great deal. But not every knee is bowed. Not every tongue is confessed. All of the nations have not been completely given to him. Not everything has been brought under his feet, under his footstool. But everything, number two, will be under his ownership and control one day. One day, everything. So you want to be impressed with Jesus? Let me tell you, here's one way you can be impressed with him. He owns everything. He is the heir of all things. And everything that God possesses is his, and everything is under his ownership and under his control. That, my friends, is power. Secondly, letter B, the writer immediately goes on to remind them that not only has he been appointed the heir of all things, but he's also through whom, Jesus, also that God, he, made the world's. So not only is he the heir and owner of everything, but number two, he is the creator of all things. He's the creator of all things. I picked up a bird yesterday off the road. It was was hit. It was a beautiful bird. And um, it was remarkable. And we looked at it and it's just an amazing thing, the way its claws worked, the way its beak was shaped. Rich Beto pointed out that, and, and this bird happened to be a hawk, and, and Tony Troxell reminded me that it was illegal to have it in my possession. And, um, and so I left it in the woods, but I looked at it. It was lying in the middle of the road, and I wanted to look at it, so I picked it up. And, and Rich Beto pointed out, he said, notice his eyes. 
The hawk's eyes were forward. It's a little sparrow hawk was its, nick, its nickname. It, its eyes were forward. He said, you know, a chicken's eyes are on the side of his head, but that hawk's eyes are forward, and he has depth perception. A chicken doesn't have much depth perception. Do you know who designed that? God did. God did. That little sparrow hawk can go down, and, and it had just the wiriest, sharpest little claws marvelously designed. Somehow all of that came out of the Big Bang. It's ridiculous. Just marvelously designed, beautifully, and it was in perfect condition, but it was dead. And, and God did all that. He's the creator. He's the one that spoke everything into existence. So he's the creator of all things. John said that, didn't he? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on then to say, That all things were made by him, through him. All things were made. Colossians, Paul, referencing that passage, no doubt. Very much similar. All things were made by him and for him. Without without him, nothing was made that was made. I mean, it's almost exactly the same in John 1, 3, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. And the writer of Hebrews in credentialing Jesus, you want to be impressed with Jesus. Let me tell you why you ought to be impressed with Jesus. Number one, he's the heir of all things. Number two, he's the creator of all things. Go figure that out. You can't make a hawk with eyes like that as opposed to a chicken with eyes like that. Thirdly, he says, he then, whom also he made the worlds, verse 3, who, Jesus, being the brightness of his, God's glory. So not only that, Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God. And so what we understand is that not only is he the heir of all things, not only is he the creator of all things, but he is, let her see, he is the radiance of God's glory. He's the radiance of God's glory. Oh, what does that mean? Let's use the sun and the moon as an illustration. Just the other night, we looked up at the moon, and my mother-in-law commented and said, look at the moon, look at its shape. It was just a sliver of a moon. You could see the dark shadow of the rest. And I reminded her that it was the earth that was blocking the light of the sun reflecting off the moon that allowed it just to cover part of the earth, and only a sliver, that fingernail-clipping shape of the moon was showing, that crescent. So the moon has no radiance of its own. The moon is a reflecting tool. The moon reflects the light of the sun. Make sure you do not understand Jesus like this. Jesus does not reflect the glory of the Father. He doesn't reflect that. Jesus is the glory of the Father. He radiates the exact same glory as the glory of God. So he's like the sun. The sun doesn't reflect light. The sun is the source of light. The moon reflects light. Jesus is like the sun. He has a self-contained radiance. I don't really even know how to explain that. What is the radiance of God? What is the Shekinah glory? What is it that made Jesus glow on the Mount of Transfiguration? I don't even really understand that. All I know is that when you see Jesus, you see God, and he is the radiance of the glory of God, and I'm really impressed by that. And the writer's trying to impress the Hebrew believers. So he is the radiance of God's glory. Let's read on. Who being the brightness of his glory and, the next thing he says, and he is the express image of his person. Jesus is the express image of God in all of his personhood, in all of his characteristics. He is, as the NAS says, the New American Standard says, he is the exact representation of God's nature. He is the exact representation of God's nature. It is so exact that it is. It's the same as. There's no difference between the original and the next one. They're both the same. They're equal. I like the way the ESV says this. He says it is the exact imprint. Exactly the specification. There is indiscernible difference. You cannot discern the difference. They are exactly Jesus is the imprint of the Father. In other words, if you want to get to know God, whom no one can even look at, look at Jesus. Because he is not only the radiance of his glory, but he's also the exact imprint of the Father in all of his character and nature. Isn't that interesting? I'm not sure I can get my mind wrapped around all of that. 
Colossians 2.9 says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Think about that. In him, Jesus, dwells all of the fullness. Is anything left out? Is there anything shortened? Is there anything, a little bit of percentage less than God? All in his fullness of the Godhead bodily. Let me tell you something. Jesus is very impressive. You're supposed to be awed by him. We kind of take him for granted. Oh, yeah, Jesus, I know about Jesus. You see, the, the Hebrews were going to leave him. They were going to quit following him. They were going to go back to the rituals of the old covenant. They were struggling to get their mind wrapped around the new covenant. They were going to fall away. They were going to look up an old friend from 30 years and go back to him. And they could not match the radiance of the glory, of the imprint, of his being, of this wonderful, lovely, beautiful awe-inspiring Lord Jesus, and the writer wants him to get it, so he continues to credential him. And not only is he the exact representation, but then I want you to see, continuing in verse 3, his glory and his express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. So not only did he create everything, but he sustains everything. He is the sustainer of all things. Now that's impressive. Just keep it going. I have an outdoor wood stove. I have a little trouble keeping the fire going. I can't even keep a fire going with fuel. What are you going to do? Jesus keeps everything going all the time. He sustains it by his power. You see, it would fall apart without him. Everything works the way it's supposed to work because God, through Christ, created it to work, and then he sustains it with the word of his power. That's why, with another word, he can uncreate it or unsustain it all. It all continues to work. Airplanes fly. Basketballs come back down when you shoot them towards the rim. They don't just keep going. They come back down. Gravity works the way it's supposed to. This is a little bit crass, but sphincter muscles work the way they're supposed to around your eye and stuff. So that your body, everything works. Everything works. And it keeps working because God sustains it with the word of the power of Christ. That's very impressive. Not only that, he goes on and he reminds them, not only is he the express image of his person, not only is he upholding all things by the word of his power, but when he by himself purged our sins, oh, there's another part of his credentialing, his resume. This is an impressive resume. Not only letter E is he the sustainer of all things, but he, letter F, single-handedly purged our sin. Now, you'd think the writer could stop right here and that they would all stay home with Jesus and not go back to a system with the blood of bulls and goats that only covered sin, that was a temporary, that was repetitive, that over and over and over and over and over, and then we wondered if we had missed something. Maybe I'm unclean. Maybe I stepped in something when I was walking home today. Maybe I did something. Maybe I didn't do the right offering somehow. And he says, no. The reason I want you to be awed by Jesus is I want you to know that he single-handedly, all by himself, he fulfilled the demands of a holy God and, and he satisfied God once and for all with a satisfactory sacrifice and he purged us of our sins once for all. Purge means to cleanse from. I mean, so like... You can go ahead and take your chances and stand before a holy God on your own if you want. It's not recommended. Or you can go ahead and think it might not be too bad in hell and you can pay the price of your own sin if you want. But I'm telling you, it doesn't work. And one of the greatest realities that the writer wants the Hebrew believers to know is that he has purged our sin once for all. Where else would you go? It's gone, it's done. You are now capable of right standing with God. You come to the cross. I used as my introduction a little bit of the kind of a negative or sad story of relationships that fall apart. And I'll bet you at least three times this week I've used in my counseling the illustration of feathers that are out of the pillow and blown in the wind. It's like things happened. I can't undo what happened. I can't put him back. You can't put him back. It's done. It's over. It was dumb. It was sinful. It was wrong. What am I going to do? 
You can't put it back. You can't make it the way it was before it happened. It's all, it's there's nothing you can do. And then I have the joy of saying, we run to the cross right now. The only thing we can do is run to the cross and let the blood of Christ, I think I've been saying this every week for weeks, let the blood of, let the blood of Christ cleanse us from how much? All sin. And it is there that we have refreshment. It's the blood of Christ that refreshes us, that cleans us, that purifies us, that purges us, that takes away all wrong. It takes it out of the mind of God. It, it as far as the east is from the west. You can't, you can't beat that. He purges us from our sin. The writer wants the Hebrew believers to know, look, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go for the cleansing of sin? You're going to go back to the blood of goats? The blood of Jesus purges us from all sin. He is the one who has purged our sin. Incredible. And they want to leave this Lord Jesus? And they're getting cold about him? They're thinking that maybe the old ways are better? And then he says, he holds all things, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now that's impressive. Have you ever sat there? Has anybody ever sat there? There is a throne at the right hand of Almighty God. The only person who's ever been allowed to sit there, who's ever been allowed and worthy to sit there, who's ever been qualified to sit there, is this Lord Jesus that you're thinking about leaving. And he sat down because he was finished with his work on majesty on high, and he was qualified to sit in the seat of power. He's in the seat of power and privilege. That's the right-hand seat. It's the seat of equality. No one else can sit there. There it is. There's the credentials. You want to know and be awed by Jesus? He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's nature. He's the sustainer of all things. He single-handedly purged our sin, and he's in the seat of power and privilege at the right hand of God. You ought to be impressed by this. And then halfway through his sentence, look what he does. He immediately moves on to where he was going to begin with because in chapter 1, he wanted to deal with something that he knew they were struggling with and somehow, for some reason, they thought that maybe angels were more important and better than Jesus himself. All right, let's go back to the text. He had by himself purged our sin, the end of verse 3, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. And actually, let me tell you, the rest of the chapter is all about angels and how Jesus is superior to the angels. So we know it was something they were struggling with. They were really impressed with angels. And so now the rest of the text is a comparison. So we started out with communication. God has spoken. He spoke in the past in various times and ways. He's speaking today through his son. He credentials his son. Christ is superior. That's the point. And now he wants to do a comparison between the angels and Jesus, and he wants to show them, as I just credentialed him, let me show you now that angels cannot live up to that resume. Angels cannot come close to these credentials. And in fact, the credentialing is going to reflect those verses 2 and 3, that, that one sentence that he went on, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, the upholding of all things, He's now going to almost break that down. He's going to do something, the writer is. He's going to quote from the Old Testament. Why is he quoting from the Old Testament? Because they love the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. They believed the Old Testament. And what he's going to do is he's going to prove from the Old Covenant that Jesus is superior in the New Covenant, and he's going to use the Old Covenant scriptures to prove it for the New Covenant. So they'll listen. It's a good idea. And so he knows that for some reason, these Jews were really impressed with angels. And we know uh, from even extra biblical writing that in that day and in that mindset that, that in Judaism, that angels were very important and they were thought very highly of and they were very impressed with angels. And by the way, angels are great, aren't they? Angels are really great. Now let's just remind ourselves, we just had a message at Christmas time on angels. Now you could click on and listen to it. It might be worthwhile. But let me just list four things that I clicked off here. 
Angels are great. Angels are impressive. For example, number one, they are spectacular in their worship of God and in their service to God, you could add. I mean, it's spectacular to think about the cherubim, the seraphim, the way that they serve God, the way that they worship God. The book of Revelation, Isaiah, the Psalms, angels are impressive in their worship and their service of God. Secondly, they are special messengers from God and of God. I mean, that's, God uses angels as his messengers. Gabriel was impressive when he announces John the Baptist's birth and Jesus' birth. We talked about that not long ago at Christmas time. And these Jews knew this. They were impressed with Gabriel. They were impressed with these angels. They thought highly of them. Thirdly, we know that angels serve and protect God's people. You can look up the verses later in your own time. They're encouraging. And it's true today. These angels are impressive and they serve God's people. Fourthly, they will be facilitators of final judgment at the second coming of Christ. Now, even in the Jewish mind, they understood that there was a a judgment to come and that angels would be involved in that resurrection and in that judgment. They didn't think the way we've been taught from the New Testament, for example, like in Paul's writing in 1 Thessalonians 4 or 1 Corinthians 15, that there would be a trumpet sound. The archangel will shout. We know as well that angels are impressive. They're going to be involved in the very second coming of Christ. Armies of angels are going to return with Christ one day. They are impressive. They are great. But they're not that great. They're great. But they're not that great. Not as great as Jesus. You know, if you wanted to, you could write, if you wanted to write, for the next several chapters, we're going to have sort of a theme in every chapter. And the first chapter is, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater, and then right after that, you could put in parentheses, than the angels. So he's arguing that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And in the first part, the first topic he hits is, and let me show you that he's greater than the angels. And that's what he does for the rest of the chapter by quoting from the Old Testament. Look what it says. Let's pick it up at the end of verse 3 again. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the position, the seat of power and position, having, right in the middle of the sentence, he continues, having become so much better than the angels as he by inheritance. Well, we already talked about that. He's the heir of all things. So the number one thing is, By his inheritance, he has obtained a more excellent name. So he's already the heir of all things. And part of being the heir of all things means that he has a name that is superior to any name that an angel was ever named. And so letter A under letter B, I think it's supposed to be number one. I messed up my outline. I get paid for talking, not writing. He is the superior because why? Letter A, his name. He has a superior name. Look what it says. Having become so much better than the angels as he has by his inheritance, verse 4, obtained a more excellent name than they. Jewish believers, you're impressed with angels. Let me tell you, Jesus has a better name than they have. He's the name above all names. And at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. No angel has a name like that. No angel has a name like that. Secondly, his position, look what he says in verse 5. And now he's going to use Old Testament passages to prove the superiority of Christ to the angels. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 is where those two quotes come from. Okay, so think about it. Let me ask you the question and you answer it. Let me ask the question that the writer is asking the believers here, the Hebrew believers. Okay, class. To which which of the angels did God ever say, today you're my son? And to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be your father? None. Aha! He's superior. Not only does he have a name that they have no name like him, but he has a position, and his position is that he is the son, and he has a father, God the father, and God the son, is same in essence, totally connected, 
Go figure that out. Verse 6, but when, he, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, oh, wait a minute. When he, God, brings the firstborn into the world, well, that's the birth of Christ. He's reminding the angels there was a birth, remember? And it was a special birth when he brought the firstborn into the world. Let's just add that to our list, letter C. His birth makes him superior. None of the angels ever had a virgin birth. None of the angels were ever deity encased in flesh to go to the cross to be a sin bearer. Nobody, no angel ever did that. And furthermore, why did he do that? Why was he born? He again brings the firstborn into the world and he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Deuteronomy 32. He's got him now, man. He's got him. You think angels are so great? Well, let me remind you that God gave him a virgin birth and you were sent to fill the skies and sing praises at his birth. Do you recall that? The angels worship him. He never worships angels. And that's another reason. His worship, his worship, letter D. He's worthy of worship and the angels worship him. And angels are worshiping creatures. He's superior. He doesn't worship. He receives their worship. Letter E, notice his eternal kingship. His eternal kingship. Look what it says. He references in verse 6 the fact that angels... Uh, um, excuse me, in verse 7, that they are ministers and they are created. And of the angels, verse 7, he says, Psalm 104, he quotes, who makes his angels spirits? He made them, so they are made, they are created beings, and his ministers a flame of fire. Yes, they are impressive, but they were created and they manifest themselves with created elements, fire. He goes on and he says, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, Psalm 45. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Look, don't miss the fact that in verse 8 he says, to the, but to the son, he says, quote, Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Your throne, O God. God is saying to the Son, your throne, O God. God is acknowledging God. To what of the angels did he ever do that? Never. We're talking about somebody different here. So he is superior because of his name, his position, his birth, because of the worship that goes on towards him, his eternal kingship, his righteous character, verse, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's his eternal kingship. He's the eternal king. Angels were created. They have a point in time where they began. Jesus is an eternal king who was never, never begotten, the second member of the Godhead. And it's a righteous kingdom. Notice what he says. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom, and you have loved righteousness. He is distinct because of his righteous character. He's perfect. And he's righteous in all of his ways, incapable of ever doing anything wrong. He goes back to the theme of creation. Look at verse 10, letter G. Jesus is superior to the angels because of creation. And we've already talked about this in his credentials. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, Psalm 102, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Wow. Now, which of the angels created? No, they worshiped him at creation because they were impressed with creation. But he's the creator. They were the onlookers. In fact, he created them, the beginning of all creation. So he's impressed by his creation. He goes on and he says, they will perish, but you remain, verse 11. He's continuing to quote Scripture. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up. Like, you can take them and fold them up like an old garment, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will never, will not fail. There's no time here. There's no aging. Your, your age will never change, and you are eternal, and you are the same you are, we call that theologically immutable, that's unchanging. You are eternal. 
You, you're everlasting. You were never created at the beginning, and you will never end at the end. There's no beginning. There's no end. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and tomorrow. It's his eternal existence that he's talking about. Angels did not exist eternally. They were created. And finally, verse 13, he says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? See, he's, we've already seen this in his credentials, and he's expanding on it, comparing it to angels. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Till I make your enemies your footstool. So I already asked you once. Let's do it again. To which we did it about sonship. Let's do it here. So to which of the angels did God ever look and say, hey, come sit at my right hand? Which angel? None. None. Only the son. Only King Jesus. Ah, he's worthy. He's awesome. He's superior. He's the supreme one. Let me read from John MacArthur, quoting another guy out of John MacArthur's, Dr. John MacArthur's commentary on this passage. Just listen. Jesus Christ came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. He became the Son of Man that we might become the sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows, and he hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine, and he made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world could not hold the book the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords, and the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. What a wonderful Lord Jesus. And there's no angel that could do this. He, he is the superior one. He does go on to say to the angels in verse 14 about the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who inherit salvation? So they are servants of King Jesus to minister to his church. They are not superior to Jesus. There it is. There's chapter one. Jesus is greater Yes, even greater than the angels. Conclusion? So why? Why would anybody ever drift away from this Jesus? Why would anybody ever be ashamed to bear the name of Jesus? Why would anybody ever want another king in their life than this Lord Jesus, superior to the angels? Secondly, why would anybody ever place anyone or anything before or ahead of such a Lord Jesus? And what does this say about our plans and our priorities and our passions when they do not reflect Christ? Our plans, our priorities, our passions when they do not reflect Christ. It means that we must think of something else as more important than this wonderful Lord Jesus. You know, we let the writer of Hebrews, instruct us on this wonderful Lord Jesus, number three, so that we'll see Christ in all of his majesty, in all of his superiority, in all of his wonder, and then it will be easy to surrender to his lordship. You know why we struggle to keep Christ in first place? Because we don't think he's very, very important. We think there's many things that are more Boastful, greater, important, worth running after. And the writer of Hebrews wants them to know, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? 
Who are you going to follow after that compare with this? You're going to go after the angels? Oh, you're going to tell me the angels were so wonderful? Let me tell you, he's superior to the angels. Well, they had more on their mind, and so we have to keep studying Hebrews because they thought of other things that were more important than Jesus as well. How about you today? Is there anything in your life that appears to be more important than Jesus? You know what Hebrews really is? Just a Christology. It's a Christology. It is a, it is a, it is a detailing of the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, if you don't have your Christology straight, you're not going to have anything else straight in your whole life. Run to Jesus today. Run to the cross. Make him Lord of your life. He is the superior one. Praise God. Let's stand together and close in prayer. And so, Father, forgive us for our low view of Christ, for how we take him for granted, how we think he's just another buddy. Father, would you restore and renew in us an awe for Jesus that is beyond any other awe in our life? Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the patience with which the writer teaches us these things because we're easily distracted. We often want to go back to old, stale relationships, somehow thinking that they're better than this when we have pure gold right here in the Lord Jesus. I thank you for our wonderful Savior, our precious Lord Jesus, our Creator, our Savior, our friend. Help us to walk with him this week. Help us to live for him this week. Help us to be awed by him this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go.